I want to move a little bit forward into what it was like for you to become chief yeah. and what who asked you to run. You mentioned that people asked you to run. What yeah. was that whole process like? I was young. I was 26, right? And I was still in, uh, obviously, working at Yothmeath in, in social work. And um, I was liking what I was doing at Yothmeath as well. I was doing guardianship, guardianship social work. Uh, and I remember it was a few of our chat and advisory committee members who said, um, you know, they, they want to put my name forward to nominate me. And at first I said, no, I said, no, I'm too young. Uh, there's, there's no way. Like I thought maybe one day I'll, I, I, and I, you know, I wrote this in essays and stuff that one day I'd, I'd want to give back to my community and, and serve my community in some way, shape or form. In my back in my mind, I thought, you know, one day it'd be pretty cool to be a, a chief, maybe when I'm retired, right. Or something to give back to the community. And, uh, so when I got asked at 26, I, I was a bit taken aback and I thought, no way, like there's no way I'm way too young. Uh, but after talking with some of our, our members and, and elders and a few of our community members, it was just it's like, okay, well, all right, let's do this. So I went to the, the nomination ceremony and I think my, my exact words when I got asked to accept the nomination was, yeah, let's do this. Like really just really not knowing what I was getting myself into. So uh, you fast forward, I think it was six weeks or something like that through the nomination process and get to the election night. And, you know, I did my research. I've always been somebody who likes to do their homework. And so I dove into into a bit of what's, you know, going on in the day-to-day -day of Chiact. And I've always been involved in the community. So I had an idea of what, you know, what services we provide and maybe some gaps that we've we've had. But I was never on council. I was never in, you know, never worked for the band. I did some some summer programs with the band, but I never really was involved in the day-to-day -day band operations. So come election night, yeah, I, I won by, you know, pretty good, healthy, healthy amount of votes. So immediately I had to resign from my, my job. And there's no handbook on how to be chief. So really it's this, you go in and, and figure it out. Luckily I had some awesome uh, support networks that I was able to tap into, one being Chief David Jimmy. And, uh, and to understand, you know, where do I have to be? What do I have to do? And, you know, it took about six months to really just learn, learn and understand what this role is all about. And, um, yeah, it was definitely an interesting process to be 27, like just 27. I was turned 27 at Mar on March 25th and April 1st, I was elected in. So, uh, being so young, it was definitely a learning experience, but I can say without a doubt that, um, you know, I was meant to do this. Absolutely was meant to do this. Uh, I think, you know, my life has kind of built me up to be in this position. And, and I, I just really, you know, the creator obviously had a purpose for me. And, can, yeah. can you tell us about what the day-to-day -day role looks like and what yeah. some of those conversations were? Because I think for a lot of people, they hear the word chief, but they don't really know, is it like a mayor? Is it like an MLA? Yeah. What is the, what, where or they ask, is it, is that a full-time job, exactly. you know, and, or what do you do? Right. Yeah. So I get that. I hear it all the time and it's, it's more than full-time. Like it's, you know, 24 seven, basically. Right. You got to be answering text messages, phone calls, Facebook messages, emails, you know, phone calls. And, um, uh, but it's, you know, a lot of meetings, a lot of representing, uh, being a, a spokesperson for the community, for the membership, uh, being the political spokesperson. But also I mentioned before, it's, you know, I, I come with this almost this nose in, fingers out approach to, um, to Chiact and business. So we have a fantastic GM, fantastic managers, but I work very closely with each manager, each department, our GM, 
uh, to understand, you know, what's going on in each department. Is there areas that we need to think as leadership strategically in how to move us forward as an organization? So, Can you tell us a yeah. little bit about the department? Yeah. So we have our uh, property and public works department, which is our housing and, and public works. So those two departments, I could see branching, branching off into two standalone departments uh, in the near future because of our, our investment into membership housing. Uh, we have our programs uh, supervisor, uh, which is growing into its very own large department as well. And especially post-COVID, I'm really looking forward to the, the programs we're going to be able to provide again. Uh, we have our lands department, which is, you know, oversees all of our, our lands, you know, development permits, developments on reserve, you know, even our member-owned uh, developments and member housing issuing development permits and, and upholding our land code and our laws. And uh, we have our finance and taxation department, which uh, we have a director of finance, Lori Fallis. She's fantastic. Um, and they oversee all of our financial operations and, and work with budgeting with each of our managers. Uh, then we have an admin supervisor who oversees all of our admin functions. And we have our uh, general manager, James Tebby. So um, each, you know, each fun each department definitely functions independently, but we try to work together as a management team to make sure that, um, you know, we work collaboratively and, and work as an organization in a good way. Wow, that is yeah. a lot. But please continue. Yeah. What is it like to try and manage that? And what are some of these meetings like? Yeah, it's a lot to manage the day. Like the day to day is like, I, like I said, I kind of have that nose in fingers out. So I know what know what's going on. Uh, but I try not to, to micromanage, right? And definitely there's been Times I've had to slap my own hand and said, Derek, get out of there. Like, that's not your role. But uh, so that's just one of the, the many facets that, that of the role of being chief. The other side of it is I have to go, you know, I'm one of the board members for the Chukwaiak tribe, uh, one of the, uh, you know, members of the Stolen Nation Chiefs Council. I've uh, one of the uh, political reps, the provincial reps for the First Nations Health Authority. Um, you know, you get asked, I'm one of the part of the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, I've one of the, national members in the First Nations Finance Authority. Um, you know, I'm heavily involved in the Child Youth Health Center with Dr. Robert Lees and Stephen Esau and, um, and all these really awesome, you know, social-minded people in Chilliwack. So, uh, you know, day-to-day, -day, like, and that's just probably skimming the surface of all the meetings that, that I attend and, and go to. And um, so, yeah, it just, you know, it's amazing. Each day can be so different in this role. You know, a, a good example is, you know, I could go from chairing our economic development board of directors in the morning and then go into a, uh, a social focused meeting in the afternoon and then finishing off in the, in the night. Like tonight, I, I go to the longhouse to meet with our longhouse committee to, to go over a grand opening uh, plan for our longhouse because we've been unable to do that because of COVID. <clears throat> So days are so different, which makes it so good, though, like being able to to have that those days that um, you're like, wow, like I, I did this yesterday, but the next day is completely different. And it really broadens your your scope, broadens your knowledge. Um, it's it's tough sometimes to to literally, especially with Zoom, you know, you, they, they've I find with COVID Zoom is stacked meetings a lot. So. I could go from, you know, days like I've meeting from eight to nine, nine to 11, 11 to 12, one to two, right? And, and it just goes back to back and having to flick the switch from meeting to meeting that's, you know, so very different. It's challenging sometimes because you really have to catch yourself up. Where am I at, you know, in, in this thought process? Because you have to think very differently from meeting to meeting. 
Yeah, that is yeah. so true. And um, I want to get into all those different roles that you mentioned yeah. and all those different positions. But I hear a lot and I'm really trying to discourage this, this whole mentality of just be happy or do whatever makes you happy. Yeah. Because I think that there's such meaning uh, that can be found in filling all these roles and yeah. playing such a different role. And like, it sounds like your days are like hectic and that you're, you're in so many different places and you're taking on so much responsibility in your community. Yeah. And so I'm interested to know, is that fulfilling? Does that, does that make you feel full at the end of the day that you've been able to play such an integral role in your community it does like it really does you know and i think the biggest thing for me is and this is what i really miss is seeing that impact center community and coming to community events and being able to see our members um thrive and and, and really benefit from some of the programs we do um and seeing people who you know may have been struggling in in the last couple of years uh but then seeing them in a place where they just look so happy and, and healthy and and thinking that maybe i played a, a little part in that or maybe we did as chi act and played a little part in that that really is fulfilling to me and and even being a part on that those bigger level meetings and uh you know something that the first nation finance authority we were part of that that huge deal back east where uh the first nations took over the uh one of those the, the lobster fishing and the fishing back east and it was you know three quarter a quarter of a billion dollar acquisition that um and being a part of that that being able to review those documents and approve a loan of you know excess of 250 million to allow a first nation community to really be a part of the economy on the east coast yeah. and rather than having to work around and go to the government and, and beg for for licenses and whatever no they decided to take over that that market and being able to be a part of that absolutely is pretty a pretty cool thing to be a part of and you know in that that's just one example of of so many that you look back on and think you know when you reflect it's pretty cool to see some of the stuff we've done i've done outside of the scope of chiacton but then i look at the last couple of years of what we've been able to do at chiacton and you know we do an annual report every year back to our membership and i always take that time to reflect on the year reflect on our accomplishments and um it's pretty amazing to look back in the last four years and see what we've done for yeah. our for our membership you know so many investments in in culture we've carved traditional canoes we built the longhouse we built the new social health building um and you know we're in the midst of, of building a, a 23 unit affordable membership housing uh, development that took four years of going to two levels of government uh, cons. I they're probably they were probably sick of me, uh, but I'd go twice a year at the very least to both the province and the feds present our updated designs, get them excited about this project, just tell a story every time I went and tell a story about the positive impacts that this housing development is going to have for our membership and what we're trying to achieve, and uh, and you know it paid off. You know we've been able to secure. A lot of funding for these projects we've done because of that relationship building and you know i'm a huge believer in that so yeah looking back and seeing what we've done for chiacton and what i've done been able to do outside of the, the realm of chiacton it's um it's always a cool process to reflect back on that that's awesome what would yeah. you say to somebody who's like my dream would be to work from like 10 to 2 and do nothing and just sit around all day like what would you say to that person because yeah. it sounds like you get a lot out of this yeah. and it seems like people are missing the point when they're trying to minimal work possible yeah. maximum amount of pay that mindset yeah i mean it's Hey, if you can work 10 to 2 and make a good living, good for you. you know? <laughs> uh, but the reality is that that's, that's not really reality for, for so many people, right? And, and, uh, and is, are you getting the most out of, out of your, your days, your life, and what you want to achieve, right? So, um, you know, I would say, you know, maybe 
get uncomfortable a bit, you know, think about out, outside of the, your, your comfort zone. If, if you're okay with, with a 10 to two job and, um, then, then so be it. But if you really want to, uh, get uncomfortable and look outside of the, your bubble, right. And then think about a bit outside of your bubble, then uh, I can, I can say with, with, you know, pretty, pretty confidently that, um, it'll be worth it. It'd be worth it. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Now let's get into some of the roles that you play yeah. um, and let's just go through, you listed a bunch of them. Let's just <laughs> go through them all. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, obviously. Uh, so there's, there's a few roles I play in, in Chiact and uh, obviously the chief, I, I chair our economic development board of directors um, outside of Chiact and I'm part of the Chukwaik tribe uh, executive and one of the board members for the Chukwaik tribe. Uh, I'm, all, I'm the vice president of the Chukwaya tribe. I also am on the board of directors for the Chilliwack Chamber of Commerce. I'm one of the provincial health reps for the First Nations Health Council and the, the interim chair for the Members Society there. Uh, like I said, I'm one of the board members for the First Nations Finance Authority and the chair of the audit committee there. Um, Okay, so your role with the Chilquaic tribe, yep. did I say that correctly? Yep. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so, you know, a fantastic organization, something that I think uh, all of us who are on the board are really proud of. Uh, you know, we've we've done well in, in both economic development and rights and titles. So we have two separate arms for the Chilquaic. And uh, like I said, one's economic development, the other one is rights and titles based. So, uh, you know, Chief David Jimmy is our the president of the Chilquaic tribe. He's the one that takes on a lot more of those day-to-day -day operations, the negotiations, whatever it might look like. But a lot of our role is really asserting our rights and titles. So as a collective, uh, the Chilquaic tribe hold our collective rights and titles from seven different communities. So, uh, you know, Chiacton being one of them. And uh, yeah, so we work collaboratively on, you know, if land dispositions, if the federal government is disposing of land, then we get involved because it's our, our right that, you know, federal land was supposed to go back to the, the rightful owners, right? So we get involved when it's in our territory to, to step in and, and make sure that, you know, federal government doesn't dispose of land without our consultation or, you know, our um, compensation to us as well. So that's a big role we play. We also play a big role in, you, you see the, I'm sure you've, we've heard of the big Bridal Veil Mountain Group project, the gondola, all that that plays in. So then, you know, proponents like that have to come consult with us when it's in our territory. So then we go through various, you know, traditional use studies, you know, environmental studies, archaeological, like all the, you know, these kind of studies to see the impacts on our territory if a project is coming into our traditional territory. And then ultimately we have to go through like a review and approval or denial process of that. So. Those are a few of the functions uh, that we at the Chukwaik do. It's, um, like I said, it's a really awesome organization to be a part of. And um, we do a lot of cool work. Like one of the examples is uh, there were some burial mounds found down Chilliwack Lake Road that uh, is obviously some of our ancestors. And uh, those were discovered. And so we, we've been through a lengthy process of actually retaining that land back and, and making sure we protect that land so that nobody can go in and, and develop or, or dig up those burial mounds because there are ancestors there. So when was that discovered? Uh, a couple of years ago now. Wow. About three years ago, I think. It's been a length, about a three, four year process that we've been in with the, the government on uh, the province and negotiating a, you know, a, a settlement or, or making sure that we protect that land. So uh, we're just finalizing it and really awesome process. and. Um, well, not awesome. It's been challenging, uh, but uh, yeah, it's just something that we're really proud of and being able to protect those those burial mounds. How old are they? Or oh, I can't remember like the exact dating. You know, thousands, right? Like a couple. Wow. Th like they're old. Yeah. So it's um, it's really cool to be uh, be able to do that and know like we occupied 
yeah. that that territory and, and that's proof that you know we've been there since time immemorial and um and nobody can say otherwise yeah. you know that's proof that we were here well before anybody else that is one of the things that I think I've gotten a lot out of this is there's like I grew up with the disconnect from my culture, yeah. but being able to hear these stories from Andrew Victor and from Eddie Gardner yeah. about the relationship with the mountains and thinking like today I can't imagine getting anywhere without Google Maps or yeah. without Apple Maps and thinking that they used to use these stories to be able to remember their locations and yeah. where they were and you would see like the three peaks and you would know the three sisters yeah. story and you would have all of this in your mind so you could navigate because like walking places today is so we're not used to it. We're not used to having to travel without a trailhead yeah. that gives us an exact mapping of where we are. And that's how people traveled. And we used the waterways to get around and just understanding that that is how it's been forever. Yeah. And it's only real recent that we've had all these tools to navigate and things have become so much easier to figure out where we are and stuff that we're starting to lose those original stories. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that that's so valuable to hear. Do you have any stories you can share in regards to Chiacton and, and your connection with that land. Yeah, you know, Chiacton tr uh, originally was was river, right? Like the river ran through Chiacton and that's where, like that's why that place of fish weir, that meaning is so, uh, you know, important to us as well is that pretty much uh, Promontory Road was was all the Chilock River. Yeah. You know, it ran through it. it uh, and if you can, you can actually, when, when Iron Horse was, when they tore down all the trees on Iron Horse, you could see where the uh, river actually ran. You oh, could see the, the, the dig out. I don't even know ran. if people know that. I don't. We took pictures, like we documented it. We did some archaeological findings. We actually found a pit house wow. on that land, um, and you know, a really cool experience. I learned a lot through that as well. That um, so the, ran, the 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 river kind of branched off and went up towards, and it, it essentially had these offshoots, and the river ran straight down Vetter Road and out to the Fraser. And our people used to canoe actually from you know the Fraser up basically Vetter Road, and then would get to the the Chilliwack, the river, and it was quite rapidy, so they, they couldn't really, you know, canoe up. So they would have to walk up. So that's where Chiacton Stetas, like Stetas is just by uh, the Vetter Bridge, basically. That That's that the meaning of the place of Stetas. And um, so Chiacton played a big part in that. And that pit house, actually, uh, when working with the developer, a lot of developers could say, oh, I'll protect that land, and that's it. Uh, we were really fortunate to work with uh, the diverse development groups who did um, all, most of Garrison Crossing, has done River's Edge, and they're now doing Iron Horse on Chiacton. And they, instead of being pushy about only protecting the pit house, they went the opposite and said, well, let's protect a larger area and actually make this more of a, you know, a learning opportunity. And, and of course, they're, you know, probably use a part of their marketing, whatever, but they took a different approach to protect the, that pit house and do an education piece around it and do more of a natural playground around that pit house to encompass a bit more of those, you know, wooden features and a lot more of that, um, you know, a different, different outlook that, that I think a lot of developers would, would have taken. So, uh, pretty cool to know that, you know, our, my, likely my direct ancestors were one of those people that occupied those, that pit house on Chiactal. Yeah, so it's... That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about working with First Nations Health Council? Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic role. I've been there now four months, I think, or yeah, something like that. And uh, right away, I got kind of pushed into the in interim chair role for the member society. And uh, it, 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 it's a very uh, intensive role. Uh, it's, it's, it can be busy, uh, but it's, it's pretty cool to be a part of that larger 
uh, shift in the transformation of the healthcare system for First Nations. Um, you know, I have a big passion for that. I'm no, by no means I'm, I'm an expert in health, but I just find there's so many resources that we can tap into uh, to help guide us in our decision-making. And um, I'm really looking forward to what we can do in these next couple of years. It's a three-year term. And uh, I, you know, work right, right off the hop. My, my goal is to work very closely with our health directors. They're the ones that know what needs to be you know, what needs change in, in our healthcare system for First Nations people. So, um, yeah, it's it's more of a political role. That one is definitely more of a political advocacy role. Uh, a lot of work's done in our region. So I'm one of the uh, Fraser Salish uh, regional reps, one of three. That's uh, me, Andrew Victor, and Willie, Willie Charlie. And there's 15 reps across the province. So I'm one of 15. So there's a couple of different tables. There's our regional tables, or sorry, Go back. There's more of our Stalo. I'm the rep for the Stalo Nation Chiefs Council, so I work closely with my Stalo Nation Chiefs Council chiefs and our Stalo Health Director Kaloa, and then work larger at a more regional level. So for the entire Fraser region, and then work at more of a provincial level with the 15 of 15, uh, where we work on you know bigger issues that aren't um, can't be tackled in, in each region or each community. Right. And I'm hoping we can just do a little bit. I know you're not an expert, yeah. neither am I, but on the difference between First Nations Health Authority and how that impacts our communities, because other provinces don't have a, yeah. a provincial health system. Yep. So we're the only province in Canada to have a, a provincial First Nations health system. And uh, it definitely like it's cha there's challenges, of course. I We had this conversation uh, maybe a week or two weeks ago at a, at a meeting is that, you know, a lot of there's, uh, there's always questions about around, you know, are we doing the right things or is, is, are we implementing the right health services? But I had to remind our table again, that we're so infants in this health world, right? We're 10 years in Fraser health has been doing this for, for, for decades. Right. And so we're still learning the healthcare system and, and what works best for us. But I think we've been doing a pretty damn good job so far of of improving health services for our members in our communities. And we're, we're always going to evolve. Like that's the reality of any organization. It's meant to be a living tree. You're meant to always grow and evolve with with the needs of each community and the needs of each each region and the province. And um, so is it ever going to be perfect? No. And I, I, you know, I can fully admit that. Are we trying our, our best to, to make sure we're doing what's best for our communities? Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, we all have the right intentions and we're there because we love, we have a passion for uh, changing the socioeconomic and health of our of our members in our communities. And I think just bringing a, a legal lens, the way our court system is set up is where you try and resolve things on the local yeah. level first, and then you work your way up. So you have your Chilliwack court, and then it moves yeah. up to the Supreme Court, and then it moves up to the Court of Appeal, then it moves up to the Supreme Court of Canada. So you don't start with the federal level, yeah. which is what all other provinces have to deal with. They have to go straight to yep. a federal body that, that regulates and tries to guide things, where here it's like, I've worked with system navigators from uh, First Nations yeah. Health, and that's such a privilege because these people know the landscape of health and how to get access to funding dollars yep. for Indigenous clients and be able to help them navigate the system and make sure that they have the services they need. And I can't even imagine what the world would be like without those individuals. You know, very simple examples. We were able to, at the Health Authority with the heat waves, our elders are eligible for air conditioners through the First Nations Health Authority, oh, wow. right? So like you wouldn't, if you were bound by the federal um, health regime, I don't, I don't think that any other province would have been able to, to really pivot 
and invest in air conditioners for elders because of the heat wave. Mm -hmm. So, and, and air purifiers and stuff like that, right? So with the smoke and all that. So, uh, yeah, I think it gives us the autonomy to shift when need, when we need to. And with COVID, the same thing, we've had to shift obviously our priorities through COVID. So, um, and pivot, but I don't think that every, you know, if, if you're, having direct funding or services from the from the federal government i don't think you would have been able to do that that yeah. I, I can't believe that that you just said that that there were air conditioners and air purifiers made available because i was we have air conditioners and air purifiers but growing up we didn't and yeah. that wasn't even a thought in our minds and just when we were going out like i was going to the leisure center and i saw kids playing outside in when it was like 11 out of 10 level yeah. smoke and it was just like heartbreaking to me because I like I'm sure these kids are out there because it's too hot indoors so they're going outside to try and play and they're paying significant detrimental <clears throat> effects to their health and their lung health and there's so many consequences and it just felt like that wasn't acknowledged by most people or being discussed or something that was popular on social media or any avenues yeah. that this is something that like you can pay real you can get lung cancer from inhaling that level of smoke so i'm really grateful to hear that and i didn't even know that about mm -hmm. first nations health authority and i think the other part is the access to counseling is something i don't think many people realize because as a native court worker i would often say like oh do you have any family lineage who've gone through indian residential schools we can get you counseling yeah. and there isn't a set determined like you get six weeks of counseling it's it's open-ended and so that's a great opportunity for someone to be able to begin to address their personal traumas in a meaningful way that's not in a group that you don't have to share yeah. in some big way that it can be private and you can process that yourself and i think that that's really where the rubber hits the road and where real difference can be made is when I was able to pull up the sheet from First Nations Health Authority that listed the available counselors yep. in the Fraser Valley and say, you can reach out to any of these people. They accept First Nations Health Authority funding. So all they have to do is put in an application and you're good to go. You choose the counselor. You choose yep. when you want to start. You choose how long you're going to go for and you can start this journey yourself. You just have to let me know how many sessions you've attended or have your counselor send a letter. But this is all for your own benefit yep. and you can do this at your own pace and i think that that is so freeing for so many people who feel put on a schedule like if there's a treatment program and you have to attend 10 weeks and you have to attend each week and if you don't attend all the weeks then you're kicked out of the program that that can be discouraging for totally. somebody who's struggling day to day with finances yep. and with having shelter and stuff like that 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 access to just one counselor your terms for your length of time is such a difference for people absolutely and, and uh, you know i'm a huge believer in counseling like I, myself, I've been through several years of counseling as well. And uh, so we've taken that FNHA program and actually, because there tends to be some wait lists as well, so uh, which is unfortunate, but then we decided as Chiacton to actually, uh, we've contracted out three counselors as well to tap into those, those. And that's, you know, part of my passion is investing in social and health programming and what I'm trying to do more at Chiacton as well. And so now we've actually almost taken that program in-house. So now we manage it. We have a, a staff member who, uh, if members want to see a different clinician who aren't, uh, you know, inept or uh, don't know the FNHA process, we have a staff member who walks them through that. Wow. So we try to break down as many barriers to, to our members to receive counseling as possible. We've set up a little office at one of our sports field buildings for the counselors to come. So our members are, have a safer place to come and, and meet a counselor. And, and they know that they can come to a Chiat and safe space to, to talk to somebody. And so, you know, and, but if our members don't want to access those three counselors, then of course we support them, whoever they want to see. And, you know, I, I think they're, 
FNHA, there's some parameters around. If you have historical um, impacts from residential school, yeah, your your window of counts and services are up to like, I think 60 hours or something like that. If you don't identify as impacts from residential school, which I think every single Indigenous person does, then they allocate, I think, 22 hours every year. But if there's any shortfalls, then we've we've made a mandate at Chiatin to, to cover those. Wow. In, uh, those differences and if but those are for only status members right they're for fnha which is unfortunate so far uh but we have a lot of members of checked in who are non-status as well so we've so that's why we created this program is so that it's not just status members who can access that it's all of our members who can access counseling services and we'll uh we'll cover the bill for the members who are non-status from chiac and um for the counseling services wow and that kind of dovetails in can you tell us a little bit about the um the health center that you guys had the youth health center yeah i know that's you know i uh that's again working with dr robert lees and uh yeah i can't say enough good things about that man and um he's the work he's doing and really is forward thinking so we he approached me uh maybe about a year and a half or maybe two years ago now um and just asked about you know the possibility of how do we get a youth health center on the south side of of chilliwack there's one in at stalo um there's one at the neighborhood learning center at, out of chilliwack senior but there wasn't one on this, like, the direct south side of Chilliwack. So when he approached me, I said, well, hey, we got the office space. Come come use Chiactons. Um, free of charge. Just just use it. Well, you know, none of our staff complained about we opened it up at 3 o'clock. So and all of our staff got to go home an hour early uh, on every Tuesday. So nobody complained about that. I mean, why not? And also, we're supporting a good cause. And also breaking down the barriers to first nations to access counseling and clinical and health services and mental health services uh for free in a place that they recognize you know they can you can walk into the sign up top says chiactal you know lands and governance office and um you know it's a very welcoming space so it just creates that comfort level for so many indigenous uh youth and you know it's been successful we've had an increase in, in drop-ins increase in clientele who access the services and uh, again, like I, I can't say enough about the program itself. I think it's low, it's low barrier and meets the needs. Every door is the right door when you walk through those those doors. And um, you know the, the clinicians, the counselors, the they're just fantastic people. And I can't say enough about the service they provide to uh, all of our community, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. And it's um, I always come from this lens of inclusivity rather than exclusivity. You know, I I think. <clears throat> Yes, there's a time and place to have programs specific to just our indigenous population. Uh, but I also believe there's a time, there's a lot of times and places where we create an inclusive environment for services for all to, to really um, provide a level of services that, you know, I think historically that's what we would do, right? We would do that. We would help others. And that's who we are as, as Stalo and Huomuth people is, is we're here to help. And, and I think that's something that is just so fantastic about this program. And yeah, I, I just can't say enough good things about it. That really leads yeah. into my question, though, about reconciliation, mm. because I do think that it is a both sides thing. And I think that the important thing to understand is I think Indigenous culture has so much to offer that yeah. I think that too often 
it's used as like lip service that like, oh yeah, let them like paint and let them yeah. do their drawings and stuff. And it's like, it's so much more than that. And I think that the one that I've constantly brought up is the example of elders, that I think that Western society really has a problem looking at their seniors Absolutely. as resources, as knowledge keepers, as people to go to, to learn more yeah. and to have a greater understanding. And Rebecca and I were just looking at um, a website that was explaining that right now at the top of almost everybody in North America's priority list is more money. But the thing that kind of dropped off and people stopped caring about is having a philosophy of morality, of having mm. an understanding of community, of values. Yeah. And I think that that's when you cut off the elders, when you cut off that feeling of connection that the grandparents guide the the young children and yeah. help them develop. I think when you start to cut that out, people kind of get lost and they have less of a direction on what is the meaning of life. Yeah. And I think that that's often answered when you're helping others and when you're supporting others that that meaning of of life is, is answered. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a key piece to me, maybe I'll digress and come back. A key piece to me of reconciliation is it's education, right? And understanding and educating yourself. But going back to that, you know, that notion of, of family and elders and um, yeah, the importance of, of that family unit. And I think that those those teachings instill em empathy in so many of, of us as Indigenous people. And I heard a I heard another snippet of a podcast talking about the shift in leadership uh, needs to go to more empathetic leaders rather than you mentioned like that bottom dollar. Everybody's biggest priority is making, making more money, going farther in life and, you know, putting themselves up on this pedestal when really that's not how I think in, in order for us to go in a direction that us as a society need to, we need more empathetic leaders. We need more members who understand humans, who know um, that there's challenges in life. And I think a lot of that for me derives from who I was, you know, how I was raised. I was raised very much when I reflect back in a traditional sense where I had my aunts and uncles on either side of me with my cousins. And we all grew up basically as one big family. You know, we'd see each other every day pretty much. And we had, you know, especially my one, my aunt and uncle, my cousin, we're literally about 75 meters from us. We had two moms, two dads, two fridges, you know, like this is their two households. This was how we were raised. And I think that really instilled so many values that I look back on and maybe who I am today. It may be the leader I am today. But then you circle back to like this reconciliation notion of, and I think, like you said, there's so much to be learned from the indigenous culture and our traditions that can be um, incorporated into mainstream societies, services and programs. And I think truly it would enhance so many of these programs and services. Um, and coming from that lens that we've, we have to offer, I think would just benefit, um, yeah, the systems that we, that we all are to a certain extent still oppressed and dictated by, um, when it comes to social health, you know, well-being, that there needs to be this, mentality shift that and taking in some of this the, the values that us as indigenous people hold and where that begins is education is understanding and i think to me is the simplest form of reconciliation is that if you can take the time to educate yourself and understand a bit of the histories of um indigenous people in canada but also you know globally you can see indigenous people across this this planet have been oppressed and and have been attempted to be assimilated since you know since contact in any of these any of these uh, countries and uh, regions so for us here i think the biggest piece is education understanding so that you don't judge you know you think twice before 
you see an indigenous person who's struggling and you think, instead of thinking, well, there's another indigenous person just living off the system, which we hear so many times. Maybe you think differently as, I wonder what that person went through. You know, I wonder what the impacts of residential school has had on that individual's life. Did they have parents who knew how to parent? You know, did they come from a household that was filled with trauma and abuse? And, and maybe they're there because of reasons that you probably can't even fathom. You know, some of the, the trauma that so many of our Indigenous people have gone through that like so many people can't even compare to or can't even, you know, and, and it's okay that, that some people haven't gone through that and it's perfectly okay. But at least take the time to understand that some people haven't lived the life that the privilege that so many of us have. Yeah, I don't disagree. Yeah. And I think that you can lay out a timeline of like my grandmother goes to Indian residential school. She gets confidence, um, a sense of self all destroyed yeah. from her, her sense of self. And then she has children and she's not able to give those children the same love and affection and support and kindness and culture and understanding that a person who didn't go through all that trauma and never had a counselor to talk to yeah. about it. She has children those children struggle to again identify with the culture because yeah. there's this huge disconnect now and then they have children and that's now today me and likely yourself yeah. where we're now realizing and seeing the lineage upwards and go how can we fix this but there's been two generations of people who have not had the access to the internet and access yep. to counseling and access to resources and access to information that our other generations totally. had and being able to understand that that wasn't their preference if they could have gone to counseling if that was a resource that was provided likely they would have way sooner than yeah. now and just being able to have that understanding of where people are at and it's very similar to a world war ii survivor who's living in our society now who's struggled to share mm -hmm. the traumas that they've gone through it's very similar and we can understand where veterans don't want to share their war yeah. stories and so we have to have that same level of empathy to people who went through Indian residential school where again we now know that children were regularly murdered put a, put away and not taken care of yeah. in meaningful ways and I think that that's an important piece to bring in and I think that sharing that with the broader community and allowing these conversations to happen is so important because what I've been getting a lot of is a lot of European people saying like we don't know who to talk to because yeah. a lot of people aren't ready to <clears throat> talk and it's not like that's the first thing you can say to an indigenous person <laughs> when you meet them so it's I think we're at this time where like we know the conversation needs to take place and that's what I'm trying to do here is give people yeah. access to knowledge like yourself where they can start to think about the issues and they don't have to email you and you have hundreds of people emailing yeah. you saying hey let's meet for a coffee so I can understand things yeah, yeah the internet's at your fingertips yeah. right there's so many resources about uh in the, in the history of residential school that you know type it in in google and you can find out a lot more information and and you're right like how can you walk up to anybody and say, hey, did you go to residential school and do you want to tell me about it? Like that is, you know, I mean, yeah. So I think they, like the simplest form is just education and really, you know, trying to build more understanding and yeah. empathy and yeah.